I once wrote to Multicolored Swatch Shop and said, can you stop having music in the show? Because not all kids like music. And can you have more comedy? <laughs> like, so I was a very... Un- producers, <laughs> yeah, no. But, but like, than a child. But, but also just for me, rather than, you know, obviously most kids did like music. This week on Walking the Dog, Raymond and I popped to Hertfordshire to take a stroll with a comedian who knows his way around a podcast because, let's face it, he virtually invented them, the fabulous Richard Herring and his beautiful dog, Wolfie. Wolfie is part German Shepherd, part Husky, so I believe she's officially a Gerberian Shepsky. Sounds like someone who plays in golf for Chelsea, so let's just call her adorable. Richard is genuinely on this podcast by popular demand. I've had so many requests to get him on, and by my demand, because I adore the man. He lives in a ridiculously picturesque village with his wife Katie, who's a comedian and writer, and their two kids, and we had the best chat. We talked about his childhood and growing up with his dad as his headmaster, his passion for comedy from a pretty young age, and how he sort of always offset his intelligence a bit with this playful sense of the absurd. He also told me about his experiences at Oxford University, where he met Al Murray and Stuart Lee, who he, of course, went on to form a hugely successful TV career with. Richard was also really honest about how challenging it had been when that TV partnership suddenly came to an end and how ill-equipped he felt really to navigate the future. He obviously did go on to become a very popular stand-up in his own right and 10 years ago launched the Richard Herring Leicester Square Theatre podcast. Yes, I know the cool kids call it the RHL STP, which has won a truckload of awards because it's brilliant. One of the things I love talking to Richard about most was the story of him meeting Katie because it changed his entire script, really. It was like The Hangover suddenly turned into It's a Wonderful Life. I loved chatting to Richard. He's really funny and obviously super bright. But I also have so much respect for the passion and enthusiasm he throws at everything he does, except for picking up dog poos. I feel like he left that a bit more up to me. Please do go and see Richard's legendary podcast live. He'll be at the Edinburgh Festival between the 3rd and 14th August and back in Leicester Square from September. And check out the RHL STP Book Club podcast because that's a total joy as well. You can also pre-order his book, Can I Have My Ball Back?, which is part memoir about his experience of testicular cancer and part his take on masculinity, which is out in October. I really hope you enjoy my chat with lovely Richard as much as I did. Please remember to rate, follow and review if you did. I'll shut up now and hand over to the man himself. Here's Richard and Wolfie and Raymond. Oh, it's a lovely day. Isn't it lovely? Yeah. Do you need... Is it the dumb thing to use poo bags around here? Yeah, I mean, if we're in the woods or whatever, it depends on... uh, It depends on where it ends up going. I I mean, there's a... You know, I live in a village, so the village Facebook is mainly about people (laughs) being upset about where people... Dogs usually have pooed. Come Um, on, But there's lots of fields and there's lots of woods, so usually if you find the right spot... uh, it's okay, but I, as a dad, I always just think, if my kids were walking up this path and there was poo here, which there often is, would I be upset? So I, ju- I judge it by that. To be honest, Raymond's poos, as you can probably imagine, <laughs> I wouldn't say it's, a, it's an impressive legacy he leaves. <laughs> well, this one does, does very, very big poos. <laughs> Ray, come on. You're not in North London now. You've got to be a country dog. My wife started doing quite a lot of the dog walks, which I'm annoyed about. So I don't get quite as many dog walks as I used to. Because I quite like this sort of hour in, in the morning where you 
can just have some time to yourself and and either think about ideas or listen to someone else's stuff. Yeah, it's really nice, isn't yeah. it? I think it's a big part of the day. Well, I, I'm going to formally introduce you. Okay. Because this man is here, and I don't often say this, by popular demand, I've never had so many requests oh, to have nice. a guest on a podcast. People keep saying, when is Richard Herring coming on? <laughs> and now I've messed up the intro and given away the big reveal. <laughs> I am so thrilled and excited to be with the very wonderful Richard Herring. And we're in it's sort of Hertfordshire area, isn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. It's sort of around about uh, Hitchin. So we're in a little village. And there are many lovely villages around here. Um, which oh, we're, look at this, Richard. Okay, that's you know I've set up an idyllic scene for you to, oh, yeah. to to view as we go. Through. It's like this all the time here. There's yes. children fishing and. Yeah, I, didn't, I, I didn't do it with my own children. I never got a chance to hold the, the thing when these were doing it. <laughs> it's lovely. Yeah, this, this is a lovely little river. There used to be the the house next to mine used to have a water mill. I just maybe show you next time. Yes. So well, you I've the, lived here all my life, yeah. So I, I know what it's like now. It's changed. Yeah. But it's changed, I think, perhaps for the better. We've got plenty of nice people now. <laughs> I'm Richard. Yeah, I'm here as well. <laughs> well I've never met you. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this all the time. So I'm with Richard and we're in Hertfordshire. And will you introduce me to your gorgeous dog, this, Richard? I will. This is Wolfie, uh, who is, uh, she's half husky half German Shepherd, although there's a little bit of a Kida, I believe, in there. She's the result of a holiday romance uh, from someone who <laughs> went to my mother-in-law's gym that my mother-in-law didn't really know. It was a, it was, I'm very glad we have Wolfie, but it was an <laughs> absolutely insane decision to take her when we took her. We were, we've, we've moved here five years ago, and uh, my wife was pregnant and going to give birth in October. We moved... We were meant to move in in March or April, but all the we needed to do quite a lot of work to the house, and all the work in the house took obviously a lot longer than it was meant to do. Yeah. And then the the, the possibility of a dog came up. There were five puppies, I think, uh, all these mixed puppies, and we went to someone's house and looked at them all, and we chose Wolfie, and my mother-in-law chose this other dog that I actually like. There were tiny puppies, but this other dog with lovely blue eyes that I kind of would have been my first choice. And then we got the dog in September, had the baby in October, and our house was still a building site. And uh, it was a very, very, very difficult. We only moved in in, in September, October. Oh, and so it was a very, very, very difficult early time. As it turns out, all the brothers and sisters of Wolfie went to people in my wife's extended family, really. Oh, how lovely. And, uh, but they, the one my in-laws got was t got too big for them to... Um, be able to cope with really so my mother-in-law who's a very tough woman uh had her arm pulled out of its socket by by the dog and then just popped it back in again herself because she's very oh tough my God, but, I love uh, but it was just too big for the, you know they're in their 60s 70s and uh he was just too big for them so they managed to find a farm for, for him to go and work on so we were lucky that we got this dog who's turned out not only to be luckily fantastic with the kids because obviously we had a baby yeah um when she was a puppy as well and she's always been very gentle and lovely with the kids 
She seems like she's got a really gentle energy, though. Yeah, she is. She has, but then you'll see, maybe we'll see as we go around, <laughs> there are some dogs, and it was, it's only happened since lockdown, but also, you know, she's, she's five years old now, so maybe it's something to do with getting a bit older. But there are certain dogs she just has, that take against her, or she's taken against, and she can really snarl, and, but most of the time she is, uh, she's very playful, and most times she just wants to play with the other dogs, but it's, it, it's too risky to... And, to, to do it, really. And I, I was a bit worried about how she was going to get on with Ray. Yeah, me too. What, did, what would you say of their relationship so far? I mean, how would you describe it? I think Raymond is, uh, is the alpha dog and uh, has got this big dog <laughs> at his beck and call, really. <laughs> Raymond's very chill and Wolfie's trying to impress him. I think she's got this sort of motherly instinct in there a little bit. She's. Uh, I've really taken to her. Yeah, she's absolutely. You know, I've never had a dog before. Have you not? No. So I, I was going to ask you about that. So we all, what's your history with sort of pets and? I had a cat when I was a kid called Oscar, who we'd found in our bonfire, but sort of been quite badly burnt in our bonfire when I was about four or five. And I remember with all my early memories is finding this cat in the embers of the bonfire with a kind of big hole in its side. It had been burnt, and then we kind of got the vet, and it was a, it was a stray cat that, and well, a farm cat from the farm behind. We lived in Loughborough at the time, I think, and uh, and we fixed it, fixed him up, so we were allowed to keep him because he wasn't really belonging to anyone, and uh, he he sort of died in the end when I was about eighteen. So I had this cat for all my childhood, really. But you um, didn't have dogs. But we didn't have dogs. I kind of always wanted a dog as a kid. And, you know, as, and my parents reasonably said that I, you know, it would be too much work and I wouldn't do it. <laughs> and they were correct. Yeah. And then I lived in, you know, then I went to university and then I lived in London for so long. It just didn't, and I wasn't in a, you know, touring around or whatever. I just didn't feel I was in a position to have pets. So it was only when I met my wife and she got, you know, she got cats into the house. <laughs> and, and, then, uh, and then she really wanted a dog. And obviously once we moved, it was a, it was a real possibility to have a dog and... Uh, and also, I suppose as a comic, because it is essentially an extended adolescence in many ways, isn't it? Yeah. That your life is just not geared to those things that, that root you, perhaps. It would have been so hard to, you know, any of that time. I, was, I found it difficult enough to look after myself for most of my life. So, <laughs> uh, you know, and plants would die and all that sort of thing. So it just never, I'd have a plant and I wouldn't be able to look after it. So, I, you know, it just didn't seem a possibility. And I, I don't think I was, I don't think I was that kind of, person either or in that, in that time in my life I was I didn't want to have something reliant on me um, but yeah you know I was away a lot you'd be away in another country for a month or two and then you'd be on tour and that would just be every day you know it's that I'm, I'm doing that a lot less now we've now we've got the kids and again especially after lockdown I've thought well do I really even want to go out on the road again in a in a in a full-on fashion you know it would have to be uh, something I really a show I really really wanted to do I think to go back on any kind of major tour even now, it's still quite hard because we'll be, we, we both work and yeah. but my in-laws live nearby and they, because they don't now, they don't have the other dog, they kind of are sometimes happy to take uh, Wolfie for a weekend or a week if we're doing something else as well. But, you know, I, th I, I thought it'd be a lot more hassle than it is. And it is a bit of a hassle in terms of rooting you down and, you know, she needs three walks a day. Really? So, uh, yeah, oh, she's, a, a lot. she's a big dog. So we, uh, we have a dog walker who does the midday walk. But for me, I suppose because I grew up here with weird artsy bohemians, that thing of dogs tying you down yeah. is kind of what I love about them. Right. Do you know what I mean? Because I think your childhood would have been my dream childhood. Yeah. Because even though you didn't have a dog, I would have seen 
headmaster, father, three kids, weren't there? You had yep. two, two brother and a sister. Yeah. Volvo? No, we had a Renault. Oh, Renault's lovely. Renault though. 16. And your mum was a teacher as well. Yeah. And I bet they paid their bills on time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, I remember it being quite tough, especially like when we, we moved to Cheddar when I was about eight. And I think there was there was some kind of, it probably coincided with some 70s a recession, didn't it? There was all that trouble in the late 70s. And I remember yeah. things got quite tight yeah. for a little while. And there was, you know, and it's three kids and suddenly having a, my brother and sister are a bit older than me. And then suddenly there's another one to, you know, to take through all that. So, but they were, you know, they, it, was a, it was a really happy childhood. They were quite strict and were it was they? a bit weird, my dad being my headmaster. I, d I did do a show <laughs> about it where I addressed my feelings about it, but I kind of realised that <laughs> it was probably harder for him than it was for me in the end. He was, he was quite a popular headmaster and it didn't really matter once everyone was used to it. I, I, I wonder whether, you know, I've always been, I've always felt like... I, um, in social situations that other people might be judging me or you know, not, not want me to be around and stuff like that. I've always been a bit awkward in those sort of ways. And I wonder if that's a slight hangover from just you know, kids being suspicious of you at school. But I, you know, I don't think it's true because I think I just had a really... did lots of comedy, had really lots of good friends. Well, and it's interesting because it's probably similar to having some level of recognisability or yeah, fame, which yeah. is that... There's preconceptions about you when you walk into a room. Yes, yeah. So as your therapist, I'm saying you've, you've sought that out because you're familiar with it, Richard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it might be true. But, you know, but I did also, with, through that show, I realised how much I was into comedy and obsessed with sex and rude things long before my dad was my headmaster. So, you know, I, 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 was, I was like this since I was four. So I think there's some element where... Yeah, that's a bit of a, you know, a lot of comedians have got something that happened in their childhood that has affected them. And, and, my, and so, there's a lot of comedians whose parents are teachers or headmasters or vicars and that sort of stuff. So I think there might be an element of your, your parents are this authority figure and you're rebelling a little bit. But I also think there's just something in you that, you know, I just, I loved people who made me laugh. My granddad would really make me laugh and I wouldn't even understand half the jokes that he did. Is this Don? Yeah, Don, yeah. yeah, my mum's dad. So He, he was, sounds yeah. a great character. He was, yeah, he was lots of fun and he's, you know, an old-fashioned guy, but also, he's, and I realise now, look, he did a lot of sort of Charlie Chaplin-esque sort of stuff and he was very influenced by Lauren Hardy and that kind of thing, but he was a very funny, similar stature to me, sort of shortish, maybe a little bit shorter <laughs> than me, shorter and would have been fat if he hadn't worked in... <laughs> building trade and stuff like that so he was and he worked on the roads a bit and um he wasn't completely you know he did quite a lot of working class jobs but i think he, he i think his, his family were it you know had a builder's business for a while um and you were you, were you doing material as a kid you did a lot of um you did a lot of broad stuff when you were very young a lot of wee wee poo poo bomba well i was obsessed saying wee wee poo poo bottom because <laughs> i just loved you know i loved it and i would say it for all the you know all the time I would irritate people, but I loved the irritation. I loved the fact that those words had power. And, uh, I, and I did it for way too long. I mean, you know, probably, probably I was a 10 or 11 and still doing it. Um, but I just, I, I, I recognise, I liked the reaction it got, but I also liked the, the I, I, you know, I enjoyed people getting frustrated with the repetition, which is, is something that I've continued to enjoy. In my, and I enjoyed annoying people, which is something I continue to do with a lot of my... Uh, podcast work as well. But were you aware that in your family, 
It was, was it Richard's the funny one? Richard's the comedian? I think probably. My, you know, my brother was very, was quite serious and still is quite serious and was very academic. Uh, he introduced me to loads of brilliant comedy. So he, he understood what was good comedy. And I think he is a very witty and funny person, but he's quite serious and wanted to be a, a serious uh, novelist and, and poet, which he still does. Uh, and so, you know, he, he was much more the super academic one. And my sister was not academic, but was incredibly popular with everyone. She was very gregarious and outgoing and everyone loved her um, and still does. And she's very, you know, she's a, she's a, <laughs> she's her own <laughs> eccentric person, but she's a very lovable and kind person. So she was, you know, she was funny in a different way, but she was much more of a rebel than I was. So me and my brother were, were both kind of, you know, tried hard at school and stuff. And my sister was not as interested in that. Uh, so I was sort of the, the, the funny one, but I, I also think I sort of combined the elements of those two in that I was, you know, I was, I was good at school and, and did well with the academic stuff, but I also was interested in, you know, people, making people laugh and, um, and a bit more kind of open, I guess, than my brother, though, uh, uh, to, to, to that sort of thing, a bit less, you know, the way very clever people are often... Just restricted by their own, <laughs> their own kind of <laughs> intellect. It was a bit, you know, I, 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 I was happy to play the fool and pretend to be more stupid than I was, which is something I've done my whole life, really, I suppose. Which to, you get to the extent where you actually realise you've become stupid. Well, <laughs> you're an interesting. I know that's your shtick, <laughs> but you are an interesting blend. Arthur Smith said something really lovely about you once. It was like a poet, poem or something that he wrote about you, and I. I just remember there was a reference to something like sage and buffoon. Yeah, it was rage and it was on my 40th birthday, I think, that he gate crashed and he, and he wrote me a four word poem or five, six word poem, which I think was rage and balloon, sage and buffoon, which I think is kind of right, you know, especially for me at, maybe it was my 30th birthday actually, yeah, yeah, at that time, you know, I think that was a very good <laughs> summing up. But I think at school, I, you know, I was aware that being clever was an ostracising thing. And, uh, and it annoyed me, I remember, and I'm still annoyed about it. I, it annoyed me that kids who were good at sport were really allowed to show off and were heroes. But if you were clever and you weren't, if you showed off about it, you were a dick. And if you, you know, if you were seen to be clever, that was, all, that was kind of a negative thing amongst other kids. So I think there was, a, there was an element where I was always going to be silly and, and, and mess around. But I felt that like by messing around and, and I think it was an annoying kid because I messed around in class. Me and my friends, we were the clever kids in class and we messed around a lot, especially when the teachers said, get away with it, but all did really well in <laughs> exams and stuff. And we must have wrecked lessons for, for some of the other, other kids because we were trying to be funny all the time. So, you know, it's, I think it was that realisation of, um, you know, you've sort of got, if you're smart, you've sort of got to hide it a little bit. And, uh, yes. and so pretending to be stupid. But I think as I've got older as a comedian, I think pretending to be stupid <laughs> and saying stupid things is, is, like a, is a really good satirical tool. I'm just yeah. going to stop and give Ray a little bit of water. OK, yes. Come on. Do you know, Richard, he's so little <laughs> that he can drink out of the cap wow. of a water bottle. That is amazing. Here you go. Yeah, I haven't got, I'll give Wolfie some of mine if needs be. There you go, okay. Ray. Have your water, sir. Oh. She's going to come oh, in. Wolfie's coming in. <laughs> Careful. Wolfie, I don't think that's very good for you. Come on, Shall I open your mouth? I've got some uh, treats for you, Wolfie. Don't eat the grass. He didn't want it, Richard. <laughs> this is the thing, you're just a sort of 
PA having a dog. <laughs> Don't you find that? It is, yeah, it is. And I'm, I know, I'm, I'm quite forgetful about things like that. I did think today, oh, it's hot, I better bring some water for it's me like, and for the dog. It's but, like uh, a PA, but it's like a PA to someone like Robert Maxwell, because you have to clean up the shit as well. <laughs> it is, but you know, but it's also, I mean, it's a good, it's a good training for children, which is the same sort of thing. <laughs> Uh, but then you just get to a point where you're clearing, cleaning up everyone's shit and it doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> Come on, we'll... Poppy. So, quite a studious child and sort of... You were always sort of knew that you would go to university, do you think? Yeah, I think that was, That's you know, I, 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 it was, you know, my mum and dad were the first in their generations, I think, to go to university. Possibly my dad's dad had gone to some kind of higher education because he was a headmaster as well. But they, they'd come from Middlesbrough and it was kind of, they'd both been to Manchester university they, they'd met each other before and were met when they're 13 and have been together ever since and they're now in their late eight mid to late 80s so uh yeah i always thought i was going to go to university i didn't necessarily think it would be uh, oxford my, my, my brother went to oxford and again that was like a massive deal was both it? for my family and for the school it wasn't something that happened really from uh, you know, it sort of started to increasingly happen a little bit that, that kids from a very nice comprehensive school in Somerset started going to Oxbridge, but I think my brother might have been one of the first. So it was there as a possibility, but, and I, you know, I used to go up and see him there and think, oh, you know, that would be amazing. But I think I, I didn't think I was clever enough necessarily. And I think in the end, I kind of had to be slightly cajoled. And I remember my history saying, yeah, I thought you were... I wonder when you were going to come and ask about this, because we, we had to do conditional offers. We couldn't be taught how to do the entrance exam and stuff like that. So it was all a bit of a different system. I think I was thinking I would go to university, but I was, you know, yeah, I was obsessed with comedy. I wasn't into pop music. So, you know, that made you kind of weird as a kid. And I was saying, I was interviewing Dick and Dom this Hello. week um, for uh, my podcast. And I remember, remember that I once wrote to Multicolored Swap Shop and said, can you stop having music in the show? Because not all kids like music. And can you have more comedy? Like, so I was a very producer's <laughs> yeah, name, but, but like, than a child. But, but also just for me, rather than you know, obviously most kids did like music, but I just I found pop music quite silly and pointless, and uh, and I still up to an extent you know, I'm in, more into music now than I was then, but I just didn't get what why people were so into music, and yeah. I was listening to comedy albums and oh were you yeah, so I was a n- massive nerd and. I was yeah, more but interested. Nerds in, always get the revenge in the end. I know. So, like in terms of girls, I was more interested in getting a laugh. And at this, for a long, even as at university, really, I was more interested in getting a laugh than getting the girl. In a way, in the end, it sort of getting the laughs helped you get the girls. But you know, I would find it funny to do what you weren't meant to do on a date or whatever because that I thought that was amusing. Yeah. But obviously, it's, it's not. It's not <laughs> to be rude to someone or to to do something unexpected. Well, without realising it, you were negging before yeah. negging was a thing. <laughs> but I'm not sure it was even negging. No. It was just it was just behaving in a way that wasn't expected of you. But I was incredibly childish, and it took me a long, you know. And I was I was clinging to, which is what the uh, how not to grow up was sort of about. You know, I was clinging yeah. on to wanting to be a kid, and I wouldn't drink tea and coffee, and I wasn't in a rush to grow up, and I was scared about, you know. I think really I was scared about girls. Yeah. So I did have a girlfriend when I was 16 and we went out for two years and she was 14 to 16 and I was 16 to 18. Right near the end she once stayed over when my parents were away and her parents were away but then said I have to tell them we didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> we slept we slept in the same bed which was nice but we didn't do anything and uh, she had to tell her dad that we'd, she'd stay. I said why'd you have to tell So he was he was furious that she'd stayed and 
you know, nearly, uh, nearly, that was nearly the end of it, but then it was the end of it anyway. But yeah, we never got anywhere near actually having sex. And when so. you, and then you went to Oxford and you did history, didn't you? Yeah, ostensibly. And I mean, I didn't do very much uh, work, I have to say. I was really in awe of Oxford and I thought it would be the cleverest people in the world and I really thought I'd got him by accident. I thought I'd be sent home at any minute. You know, and in the end I got a decent degree, but I'd really done so little. I think if someone had told me I could get a 2-1 at the start, I'd have worked really hard mm. and I think I'd still have got a 2-1. So I do have an, I had an element of, you know, I, I kind of could, I knew about how to do exams and I knew how to game the system a little bit and I borrowed people's notes and, you know, I was quite wily, I think, you know, I was clever enough to cheat the system. You obviously got really involved, that's when you got properly involved in comedy yeah. at that stage. Well, I'd done stuff at school, so, I, you know, I knew I was interested in, as I said, I spent all my time re listening to these Monty Python and Derek and Clive and Not Man Got News Records and I was obsessed with the young ones. And so I'd done com comedy at school. And and I def your were you Rick Mail? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I love Rick, I loved and love Rick Mail. Um, and uh, you know, I went. I, I knew that the, my main purpose of going to Oxford in my mind was to try and do comedy at Oxford because mm. I'd read this book from Fringe to Flying Circus about how all the pythons basically had become successful. So I knew that was a possibility. But I also thought there's absolutely no way I'm going to be good enough. Um, you know, I'll give it a go. Um, but then we went up the first, and, and it was a horrible thing, because in the first term at that point, history students had an exam at the end of the first term. Uh, and, uh, and I felt certain I was going to get, you know, fail it and get sent away. And so while everyone else was sort of enjoying their first year of university, first term of university, I was sort of hiding away in my bedroom trying to translate Latin, even though I hadn't really done Latin for three or four years, and reading The Venerable Bede and all this shit. So, so at Oxford you were, but you, you were thrown then sort of into the, well, you, yeah, so I, you chose I, to enter Well, it, so you? I knew the Oxford Review did um, auditions yeah. and I hadn't done, there was a, there, this new weekly fortnightly comedy club had started up called uh, the Oxford Review Workshop, which was run by a guy called Tony Brennan, who became a very good friend of mine, very sadly died mm. a couple of years ago, um, but actually launched by, by, by opening up this club. We just, you know, it was so, we, all these things came together with such luck. So that started the same term that we went up. I was too scared about my exams to go to the first two or three of them. Um, and Stuart was going to them doing sort of weird stuff that was that people were sort of slightly <laughs> confused by. Uh, and um, But I auditioned for the Oxford Review uh, just before my exams. And uh, they said, oh, can you sing? And I said, yeah, I can sing. And they said, oh, we'll prove it going. I think it was Dave Schneider, I think, was doing the, doing the audition. He said... Um, can you uh, can you sing something? And so I sang this song that I'd written at school and done in this sort of uh, underground student review, w yeah. which was about me having a singing penis uh, <laughs> and uh, doing a sort of ventriloquist act with it, ironically. Uh, and they just went and they, they just reacted. So I can remember them reacting. And Tony Brennan almost leapt over the table and said, "We've got to sign you. We've got to come and do this at the Oxford Review workshop." And I got a second audition. I didn't get into the uh, review, but we 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 nearly became the review. Uh, that year actually as a result of all this and yeah. so i did the oxford workshop and did this sketch and Stu wasn't there for the first time he was seeing watching suzanne vega so we had we'd met i think at, at the oxford review and this audition. is just for anyone who doesn't realize <laughs> i mean what are you doing listening to this if you don't realize but this is obviously strictly yes which is long term comedy partner yeah so we'd met but we'd met and seen each other a couple of times but just the way things work we didn't do shows together i did this singing penis song and like 
there was two guys in the front who were shaking their heads who were the guys who you know who'd done well in the foot and and i thought this could be the moment that actually destroys it or makes it and it sort of didn't go that well but Stu hadn't seen it but he heard about it and then we met at the the party for the oxford review which was in a cricket pavilion and uh, i was i was dancing i was poking on my own to the sex pistols <laughs> no one else was dancing and uh, Stu sort of was impressed by that because he's impressed by music and you know uh, and, uh, and unusual music choices. And we, ju we just chatted and we did this. Just watch out. We'll go car. this side. Car coming, Raymond. I remember we, we, there were like all pictures of old uh, cricket teams up on the wall. And we spent like half an hour just making up stories about the, the people in the pictures and imagining who they were and stuff. And we really got on. And yeah. we both had not really liked what anyone else was doing at the workshop, which was all very sort of Monty Python yeah and he'd done a sketch about people queuing at a bus stop with fruit and I'd done the singing penis thing so we said should we try and you know do something together next term and we got a few of our friends together uh, one of whom was Emma Kennedy who's now a uh, very successful writer and broadcaster and uh, my best friend Mike Cosgrave who's a musician in terms of the university it snowballed very quickly we became this sort of hit sketch group because we we sat down and said look let's just make a rule we won't everyone else is doing crappies or Monty Python sketches and spitting mm. uh, image kind of sketches. We won't do anything about personalities. We won't do any TV parodies. We basically decided to do our own thing. And we were sort of doing a social satire, I suppose, rather than a political satire. And we did quite weird sketches. And, you know, very quickly within the confines of this <laughs> comedy club, which had, <laughs> I look at the pictures of it now and realise how tiny it was. It was downstairs at the Oxford Union, so upstairs. And I think, I've always said, I think there's a... A massive drama in this downstairs in this tiny sort of gun, Guy Fawkes cellar, which we could have filled with gunpowder and changed the history <laughs> of the world. We were doing comedy you with, you know, Armando Iannucci and eventually Al Murray. And, you know, we're just this very rich group of people who suddenly yeah. all happened to be at university. It's like no one had really had been to Oxford and done comedy since Angus Deaton and Rowan Atkinson. It would been a long time. Mm. While upstairs you had uh, Boris Johnson, David Cameron, Michael Gove, you know, if all... <laughs> Or doing their political... It feels like a play, doesn't it? Or it feels like this an alternate reality where I think the world would be better if it had, the country would be better if it had been run by <laughs> Al Murray and Armando Nucci, even Stuart Lee, than, it, than, than, than those three. So you, yeah, it was... Did, it was you, did you encounter any of them at all? Not really. I remember seeing a picture of Michael Gove in a kilt and thinking he would look like a... <laughs> <laughs> but that's they were but you know even so i was a i was a comprehensive kid at st cats which was this very comprehensive you know modern college out on the outskirts yeah. and you didn't mix really with the people at christchurch or whatever you know you would a bit through drama and stuff so i did loads of drama and i did loads of comedy and you'd meet the sort of drama people but we never met the politics people coming from as you say you know even though in the greater scheme of things it was you know privileged in the sense that you had two loving parents and they had st steady jobs and all that sort of stuff but in comparison obviously to that sort of brideshead kind of yeah. privilege I remember going to see a friend of mine who's at Maudlin yeah she said we're just going to go and see my friend Jacob yeah and it was this wood panelled room <laughs> with sort of classical music yeah and this 18 year old boy and it was Jacob Reese Mott right <laughs> and we knocked on the door and he said come right 18 yeah, well, it, you know, there, there was definitely a disparity and I definitely felt it and I didn't, you know, and that's why I didn't feel I was deserved to be there academically. 
I didn't feel, I thought, you know, I, I didn't feel any kinship with a, with a lot of the people there. There was enough, comp yeah. you know, there's enough normal people there for it to be okay. And the people, you know, I got into the drug, I think the first term was very wobbly for me. And then I met my people and, and especially the first Edinburgh, the friends I made there are kind of my lifelong friends. So the drama people were fine. But yeah, you know, I, I remember doing a thing where I was, I'd been stupidly, I was doing a Dr. Faustus play just as a, almost as an extra, it was a gargoyle and they wanted to do a PR thing and, and I was so keen that I did it where I had to cover myself in porridge and hang out of a window as if I was a gargoyle, nearly freeze to death. I was seriously, was shivering, had, didn't like heights and was, you know, I, I did all this stuff for them. Obviously they never did anything in return for me. And then I remember that this very kind artsy woman who seemed about 35 years old but was probably one year above me at university to, and it was at Magdalen College took me into her rooms where there was a bar I, I mean I don't think I'm a ma rem misremembering this there was like a bath like you have in hotels in the bedroom you know like a yeah. like a lovely bath and I, that's where I had my bath I, a, I was sort of thinking I'm naked in some, you know there were these and these were two women in the in whose rooms they were in these luxurious rooms they were in were just uh, walking around as this was normal to have a boy covered in porridge in a bath but I was just thinking, you know, I was thinking of my tiny shriveled, freezing cold penis, thinking, oh my God, this is, you know, and it wasn't even, not even thinking, well, this, could this become a sexual thing? That wasn't even on my mind. It was just a humiliating moment. But, what, you know, the luxury they were living in compared to me, where, where St. Cat's was a, was a single bed that was like, not, I mean, I'm probably wider than it is now. There was, it was an absolutely different world. We didn't have a, you know, we had a shared bathrooms and yeah. so it was much more like a travel lodge I was living in <laughs> <laughs> and they were living, and they were living in a, this unbelievable luxury and, and, and just seemed so grown up because, you know, and uh, public school teaches people that confidence, you know, so yeah, of course it's that. And so, and, and, and you know, I th it took me a long time to but even think... realize that and yet, you know, I did all this comedy. I came to London as a 21-year-old and thought that I could go and do stand-up, even though I was terrible at stand-up. And, you know, even though everyone was older than me, I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't scared of the idea of going and standing in fruit. Well, I was scared, possibly, but I did it. <laughs> but, you know, so there's a kind of element of me that was, and, you know, I knew what I wanted. I knew I, want, I knew the route to go to become a comedian. Uh, I sort of wanted to go, that, you know, I was driven by that kind of sketch idea, which I think was one of the main you know, points of difference between me and Stu, why things were maybe worked and why they also weren't going to work because he was very dedicated to stand-up and I, and sketch comedy was very uh, passe at that point. Mm. And I was, I was, I, I didn't want to do stand-up and I wanted to do sort of group stuff and sketch stuff. Um, and so, yeah, so, but you know, it's sort of a weird, because I, I know how, you know, how uncomfortable I was for a, for a lot of time. And I had a lot, you know, in, in Edinburgh, I had so many bad experiences in Edinburgh. Um, and, and notably when we were the Oxford Review and which you know was my dream we got to Oxford I got I got to Oxford and I got on the Oxford Review which is all I wanted to do and, I, and then we went to Edinburgh and just at the point where alternative comedy had basically won that battle and you know and we had gigs where all we did a gig at Late and Live where basically every comedian turned up just to heckle us Keith Allen came to our opening show and moved all you know oh. sabotaged it well, he came to our show to review it for, for the BBC too. So it was, I mean, absolutely complete, psychologically yeah. damaging because it was all of the stand-up people. It was all the people I thought, you know, this is the, these are the people I have to, I have to accept me to, for me to do the job, job I want to do. Keith Allen punched the theatre manager, watched one sketch, and then just said on TV, Oxford Review, as you expect, shit. He hadn't watched the show. You know, we may have been shit, but that's not the point. And then the next week, I got to go on as a right of reply, and they just all bullied him and Malcolm Hardy just bullied me again. And, you know, and then I find out, like years later I realised you know, they were going you're all public school boys you're all posh and I said well we're not you know we're at, only the guy who plays the piano actually yeah. went to public school 
And they all, you know, Keith Allen went to fucking public school. <laughs> this, is, this is what you'll often find. Yeah, exactly. So you gave yourself a five-year plan, essentially, when you came to London, didn't you? And yeah. you were working with Stuart at that point, and it was like, if we don't make it in five years, um, teacher, maybe? Yeah, I mean, I think I probably would have been a teacher. I, you know, I'm really glad that I had that opportunity. And, you know, I think in the early 90s, it was possible to just go, look, I'm going to just live on the breadline, you know, but in the safety of having, yeah. knowing my parents could come and rescue me if, I, if that was the end of the world. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we, we lived in a big house in Acton. It was £60 a week each to rent. And so we had to basically earn about £100 a week to, to you know, get by. And yeah, again, I, you know, I didn't think it was possible, but I knew it's what I wanted to do. And so we said, yeah, let's come to London. We'll, we'll try. Stu wanted to try the stand-up circuit, which I didn't really want to do, but I did try it and did not enjoy it. Uh, we, you know, I knew we could go to Radio 4 and, uh, and pitch stuff to weekending and that sort of thing. So we came with that, so let, let's see how it goes. And, you know, and just stayed at home and drank one pound bottles of wine and ate jacket potatoes. But quite quickly, Stu got a job quite quickly that meant he, he was working on an encyclopedia of gardening with a relative of Aldous Huxley's. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I managed to get a job working on the Royal Family Encyclopedia, which wasn't quite as lucrative. Stu very, very quickly, his stand-up took off. He'd started doing stand-up at university and, he, and, and his Edinburgh experience the next year, mm. the, his show, the, the review should have been blasted, but they'd done a lunchtime show of stand-up, which had kind of got very good reviews. And so he'd practiced doing loads of stand-up and I'd never done stand-up, really. And so he came, sort of hit the ground running and was very successful very quickly, won the new act of the year, mm. uh, got loads of gigs. I was sort of struggling, but doing okay. And then together we were also um, trying to sort of work for the radio. And, and, and luckily we did Weekending, which was quite tiresome but we kind of got contracted. That was very much the sort of entry point wasn't yeah, it? Yeah so everyone did graduates, this. You got 20 quid or something to yeah. write your lot you know. And if you look at that group group of people um, you know half the people in the non-commissioned yeah. writers room will have might, might have you know had no homes to go to and we're in to keep warm and half of them have gone on to write you know the big Hollywood blockbuster comedy films of the last 10 years or whatever you know so it's yeah. an incredible room of talent again. Um, and you were writing with um Armando Iannucci and you're working yeah, so, with Steve Coogan. Well, Armando produ produced Week Ending One Week and we knew him from university, but not that, that well. And then he said, look, I'm working on this uh, other show called uh, On The Hour. He did, he'd done a production course, he was a producer. And uh, this was the show he'd come up with. So yeah, he said, it's Chris Morris and I'm um, Steve Coogan. So he got together this group of people and we, we ended up sort of the, you know, the, probably the main, we probably wrote about a third of the first series, I think, me and Stu. Though a lot of it was improvised as well, so. Um, and uh, yeah, we just sort of lucked out and got this writing gig on what turned out, obviously, eventually to yeah. be the big comedy sh TV show of the 90s, though we were, we'd been, <laughs> we were no longer in it by the time that happened. <laughs> so it's sort of both lucky and unlucky, but you know, we also gave you a, it made you think, oh Christ, here we go, you know, we, you're winning awards and yeah. you know, it, it was all sort of happening. You think, oh, this is easy, this is how it goes. But we, you know, we worked incredibly hard, you know, and I was just, through my 20s and 30s, I was so dedicated to comedy that, you know, there was very little, drinking and comedy, there was very, very little else going on for me, really, you know, and... Uh... I mean, I was first aware of you when you were working with Stuart on Mr Fun and This Morning with Richard, not Judy. It felt, obviously, to me, you became incredibly successful pretty quickly. I mean, I think it did all happen very quickly. We, you know, and we gave ourselves five years, and within five years, we, we were 
at least done the part. I think we were probably on TV within five years. So it had, it did work in a, much too quickly, really, I think. So to the extent that you Do didn't... Do you think so? Well, that you didn't really appreciate, you know, that it just felt, oh, this is what happens. We were just <laughs> sort of, I mean, there was a lot of luck. We worked, we, you know, we put a lot of effort in and we, we did everything that came to us. And we, you know, we were obsessed with doing, you know, coming up with stuff. And we would, you know, write much more than anybody else wrote. But yeah, you know, but also the main thing was I just don't think I appreciate how how amazingly lucky we were yeah. to just suddenly get like a million pound budget to make a TV show, and you know we had so much money to spend on this show, and we were kind of the again the last sketch show that got that kind of oh, oh it's probably just someone shooting animals. It might be a, it might be it's a, you know this you is you should have seen Wolfie's face when you said that <laughs> at two, Dad. <laughs> that was quite close. So. Were you happy at that time, Richard? No, I don't think I was. No, I don't, you know, I know it was, I was just so driven by it all. And it was quite a, it was, it's very difficult being in a double act anyway. And we were pulling in different directions mm. all the time, really. And uh, yeah, I, don't, I didn't really know. I don't think I enjoyed it. It all kind of yeah. flew past me and it felt like it was, you know, it felt like, oh, this will carry on, this will carry on. And then it just stopped. Yeah. And there's <laughs> no one there to go, this is what you have to do next and we'll help you and... <laughs> We'll help you cope with this, you know. And there was a lot, you know. Again, with Edinburgh, I think like I, I uh, was reminded of this because Sally talked about it on the telly. I went out with Sally Phillips, which was my first like proper relationship, really. And then we broke up, but we, I, I, I we stayed working because I thought she was fantastic and mm. I didn't want it. But she did a show where she did a show in Edinburgh about how upset she was with me for breaking up with her, and uh, was in my show at the same time. And apparently, she said she said sabotaging. I don't remember her doing that, but. So she was sort of taking revenge on me. Well, and we stayed, we were sort of still, and we were still sort of yeah. seeing, it was a very complicated thing, you know, yeah. but, it, but I just think like it was so, <laughs> in fact, Arthur Smith, is, who we've already mentioned, <laughs> what I, my main memory of being heckled at late alive is he was my hero and he walking through, shake, I remember him walking, <laughs> holding a pint, shaking his head at what we were doing. And then he did the show with Sally. So it feels like he had this, <laughs> he was out to get me so you know Edinburgh felt like this kind of unfriendly place I didn't really feel I fitted in I felt a bit either way you know I hadn't really hadn't really I'd given up stand-up and so I didn't feel I fitted in with all the stand-ups yeah. which Stu did but Stu was sort of keeping that to himself well you said as well uh, when it finished your um working relationship and as you said it just came to an end as you've said yeah but it feels like when it ended I feel you threw a lot of yourself into that yeah, well, you were kind of very invested in that creatively, I yeah. suppose. Well, and the so double act was more, you know, the double act was much more my thing in a way, or at least uh, the character I played in the double act would only really work in the double act as well. Whereas yes, Stu was all I the time that. still doing his solo stuff, and the, what that wasn't that different than what he was doing with Fist of Fun. So it wasn't, even though he had a wilderness period as well, and it was, you know, it's a difficult. Uh, that's what. Yeah. Uh, there should be someone helping people because <laughs> it's, it's too brutal a business. You're doing well, and then just you don't know why. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I remember being in Edinburgh and Steve Coogan had I'd sent, I was doing a play that actually Frank was nearly in and then wasn't in, and I'd sent it to Steve Coogan and he'd, he'd really liked it and mm. said, this is amazing, you know, he was really surprised by how well written it was. And then he'd, he said, oh, I can't do it, but, you know, come and talk to me about doing something with my production company. And I went to a party with him and then Jane Root, who was the controller of radio, uh, BBC Two at that time, was at, was at the party. And Steve, Steve introduced me and said, oh, do you know Jane Root? And Jane Root was the person who was going to decide whether we got another series or not. And, you know, by now, yeah. not selling to us. And Steve said, oh, Jane, do you know Richard Herring? And Jane Root just turned her back on me, didn't say hello, just turned her back on me. 
even though I've been just used to and talk to someone else, I thought, oh, probably not getting another series. I kind of knew we were, she didn't like us and she, didn't, and she didn't like a lot of the things that went on to be successful as well, that she sort of lucked out with. Um, so, you know, and to cope with that and to, you know, it's very, it's very difficult to get, the, even the level of success we had as 20 year olds, there's a lot of things to cope with. Um, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a very competitive business. And I was just confused. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know where I would go next. I was sort of in a weird position because all the time we'd, we'd worked on the double up, we'd probably broken even by the end of the 10 years. We'd, we'd, you know, we hadn't made much money. And probably by the end, we'd paid off our debts. And I had a flat, but, you know, there was, it was all mortgage. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but then I did Al Murray's, wrote this Al Murray sitcom. We did 37 episodes. I, I did nearly all time, of it. time, gentlemen, please? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but also suddenly got paid like proper money. proper money but it's sort of interesting how long it took me to it took me to, like the stuff that happened next after all the time generally so I had a couple of years where I was sort of thinking well I've made money and no one really cares about anything I've done <laughs> so you know why am I bothering and I had a couple of years where I was still working but taking it a lot easier comparatively but and you... I, I did sort of but I started doing talking cock and stuff and I think the, the decision to go back into doing stand-up and start again just sort of completely revitalized me yeah. and and um, but, but, you know, with a bit of confidence and with feeling I fitted in, I felt I fit, fitted into the 2005 generation of comedians more than I, much more than I did into the 1990s ones who I, I you know, and looking back at it correctly, because it was a very macho male mm-hmm. environment. And then from the 2000 onwards, it, the stand-up scene became much more open to different points of view and, yeah. and, and less aggressive ideas and, and more exciting ideas and and you know also women and, and, and people of different races weird things like you that. know and, and even though i'm a man and a white man i've sort of it did it did and i think we'd influenced the, the comedy yeah. zeitgeist of people who like comedy enough that it, it felt like we fitted into into what was now going on and much much more and you and you went on obviously i mean you've been so consistent and committed at edinburgh and you've done how many I think this year is going to be my 26th Edinburgh of the, but you know, I've had a few off recently. There was a point where it was sort of, you know, I'd taken a few years off between being a student and, and doing mm. professional stuff. Uh, but since then, I'd only taken maybe two years off. And I did, I, you know, I really threw myself into stand up and, and doing stand up shows rather than, you know, I did do the clubs, but I, I wanted to do like one, one hour, two hour shows. So this Edinburgh? Yeah. So I, I was gonna, I, you know, I had uh, testicular cancer last year, yeah. which, uh, which I've, but, but it's all fine. Are you okay I think. now, Richard? I believe I'm... so, but you know, they keep an eye on you, and you know, and I'm very paranoid, obviously, about the. About, are, I'm that... down to one, so I, I worry about the other one. But um, there was a only one time it really got to me, and it was only because I've got young kids. It, it made me really realise where my priorities were because yeah. the thing, you know, I talked to the doctor, and the doctor who'd said, oh, it's definitely not cancer, but more or less. <laughs> when I went been in, we'd been in for the scans, and he said, oh, look, you know, it could, it could be, you know, there's something there, and it could be, and he wouldn't say the word cancer. <laughs> and I thought that's, you know, I think they're not allowed to once it is, but he'd been, he'd been sort of so like, if I was a betting man, I'd say, you know, it's epididymitis, and, you know, it's, yeah. uh, it's not going to be cancer, so don't worry. Um, but we have to check up just in case. Um, and so it, we didn't know it was cancer until definitely cancer until it was out. But I, but I was listening to my son laughing in the next room, and you know he was three, I think, at the time. And I was just thinking, oh my, you know, my friend had just died of cancer, Tony, who we mentioned earlier, mm. and he had a young son as well. And I was just, you know, I was just thinking that it was, I was worried about them, and I was also it became sort of, of quite self-indulgently. They won't remember me and all that sort of stuff. But a, it's not as it turns out, it's not that bad a cancer. Right. <laughs> and b. Um, it just made me reassess, you know, made me really think about 
where my priorities laid and everything as well. So it kind of, and as a comedian, just there, something like this is gold dust. So that even yeah. even at its absolute <laughs> worst, when they told me it wasn't cancer, there was a part of me thinking, oh, that's a shame, I won't really do that show about having ball cancer, that would have been quite a good show. So, you know, <laughs> careful what you wish for. But, you know, as a comedian, there's a part of you thinking, well, this is great. And equally, you know, I've written a book. I've, it's become a plot in Relativity, which is my Radio 4 sitcom. Yeah. I've got a puppet. I started doing this puppet. Oh, I mean, there's yes. a lot going on. So I've got a puppet that is <laughs> my, brilliant. And my the, testicle. We should talk about the podcast because yeah. it's been phenomenally successful. And that's because it's brilliant. And well, I mean, I was in there early again, you know, I've, 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 you know, I don't know if it's luck or judgment or, I mean, I, I got in early with podcasts, but mainly because I just got fed up of waiting for TV and radio people to get back to you or interfering. And I just loved the immediacy of it. And, you know, I knew I had lots of ideas and I was struggling to convince people to make them or they would make them, but it would take three years and they'd change something. And it just, so I just thought, you know, this is great. I just want to get stuff out there. Um, and so, and all the, and every other comedian went to me, what, you know, what are you doing? You're not getting paid. Why are you doing work for free? And I was going, because I want to get the work out there. And, you know, I, there was a part of me that thought maybe people will listen and then they'll come and see my stand up shows. Maybe mm. it'd be, you know, which it did. That definitely worked. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it'll re- lead to a radio show, which it did in the end. Maybe it'll, you know, we started, I started getting onto the panel show circuit as a result. So it did work as an idea to doing it for nothing. Um, but yeah, I think it was just, you know, I got, I, it just appealed to me the kind of punk rock. Um, you know, just the fact you could do something so easily and readily, and I've become, and I've become very much more interested in doing things that aren't written. You know, that are. That and also, I suppose you've got a level of freedom in that, you know, your interviewing style is quite risky sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you start. What I love is that you always start with the least impressive thing on someone's yeah. IMDb page. Yeah. What's yours, incidentally? Um, I mean, there's so many, I mean, nearly everything. I mean, there are some people you go, oh, I can't choose because there's so many, and there's some people who don't have anything that's embarrassing. <laughs> I think nearly everything on mine. I, I usually go for, I played a spider on school's TV, and then the tape went wrong, and they didn't ask me to do it again. But it's, it's a good way of disarming people, and it's a good way of actually just getting stories. Well, I think, you know, I really want to get someone like... Um, Harry Potter, Radcliffe, Daniel oh, Radcliffe. Yeah, he'd be great. Because uh, uh, he's a big comedy fan and you know, he's obviously very busy. But it'd be great to get him on and just not talk about Harry Potter at all. Because he'd be so sick of it's it, you brilliant. know. Because, you know, and so like if you pick, if you pick something <laughs> that nobody's heard of, but often they don't remember the thing, thing I've chosen, I guess. <laughs> Come um, on, Ray. It's such a brilliant podcast. But one thing that I always strikes me about it is that you are obviously very bold sometimes in your questioning yeah and that makes me think you're not sort of a people pleaser or you're not scared of that moment when someone might not like you i don't like it if they don't like it i have to say you know you you know the the uh, the, um a couple have gone sort of a bit wrong a couple have gone wrong without me realizing because uh richard e grant wouldn't let me put his out and i can't work out why it was one of the best (laughs) ones we ever did and i'm really confused about why and he blocked me on twitter so i can't even ask him I want the guests to have a nice time, uh, but I want to be a little bit cheeky and take a risk. And the thing with comedy is you've got to, that little leap when you go, and especially improvised comedy, you have an idea, you go, should I say this? You know, this, with Richard E. Grant, the one was that he seemed to enjoy and was a brilliant piece and the audience loved, was about his Oscar. He'd just been, you know, the Oscars had happened and he hadn't won the Oscar, but he'd been nominated, but everyone beforehand had been saying, you know, he's playing up, he's, he's being all giddy and playing up because he's trying to wow the... The, the people, the voters, you know, he's just playing an act. Uh, and he said, yeah, that was very annoying to me because, you know, I just was enjoying the thing. And I said, yeah. And I said, yeah. And if you, if you were that good an actor, you'd have won the Oscar, wouldn't you? <laughs> and it occurred to me in the moment, 
and I, you know, and there was a part going, you know, this, and it was very near the beginning of the, of the podcast, and I thought, you know, he could, this could, he could walk off, or it could be the best bit of comedy ever if he takes it the right way, which was, you know, as a joke. Maybe he didn't take it the right way, but I don't well, think it was that. that he seemed to like it. I at the could time. have told you, as someone who grew up in a house of actors, right. don't do it. Really. <laughs> I mean, it's a kind of joke yeah. you could make with Frank. Yeah, you could make with a comedian. You know, Frank's favourite thing is going on about how terrible his night at the Brits was. Yeah, and so I think possibly you, you with comedians, I think the boundaries are very different. Yeah, and I think with actors. I think I think it was the overall impression. He felt I was taking the mickey out, which I wasn't really. But it, but that's the that's the podcast. I think I'm very different on stage than I am in real life. Yes. But I'm I'm more in, I'm interested in comedy. I'm interested in the the experience and the live experience. And it's that ju- it's that feeling the judgment. And it did you know that joke the Richard E. Grant one did work, and he did seem to like it at the time. Maybe he didn't like it. Mm. Um, but you know I like that that risk because you know without take some of them have to go wrong. <laughs> Mm. Because if you if you're if you're playing absolutely safe, you'll never get that moment. Oh my God, I didn't believe you. Say the other one that worked very well with David Mitchell when he's just about to do the new William Shakespeare sitcom with Ben Elton. He said, oh, "I'm just working on this thing about William Shakespeare with Ben Elton," and it was just after Ben Elton had you know had had quite a few failures. Yeah. So he just talked about it, and I just went, "Is it shit?" <laughs> and, he, you know, and he went, "No, it's very much. We're hoping it won't be." And he gave a very good answer, but again, it was just. It was voicing the thing yeah. that, you know, people would think that you wouldn't usually say, I suppose. Um, um, but, but, you know, I think people also get, they know it's the problem with that kind of comedy. It's about who's saying it. And this is what Barry Cry always used to say to me, who I love, and well, I love Barry. He was a friend of yours, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, but it's about, it's not about the, what the line is. It's about what you feel about the person saying it. And if you like the person, mm. then the thing, you know, a thing out of context might sound incredibly offensive but in context or because of the person might be absolutely fine and actually i always have a thing i make jokes about losing my family and my sister and my parents of no longer being around you know quite dark jokes yeah and i have a thing where if other people make those jokes if they're in my club i sort of accept it yeah i'm like no that's fine you're allowed to do that joke but when somebody has a completely intact family. Yes. I get a bit pissed off. No, of course. Do and you know what yeah, mean? absolutely. And, and you know, but it's so it's but, down. It's but that's about thing. understanding, you know, watching a 4-year-old, my 4-year-old son trying to understand how comedy works. He desperately wants to make you laugh, but he'll he'll really mess up a lot of the time, you know. He'll punch you in the face and go I was trying to make you laugh or whatever. And a lot of comedians don't get a lot of professional comedians <laughs> don't get where the line is and don't get and yeah. don't get how you find out. But you've got to take, you know, but equally you have to take chances. So you can't be in an environment where you're worried all the time about what people are going to think yes. or what they're going to say. I bet you're a really nice dad, actually. Um, I hope so. I really, it's my favourite thing. And I'm, you know, I sort of regret leaving it so late. But obviously, if I hadn't lived it so late, it, w- it would be different people. And that would be sort of weird. And I think <laughs> it's the right time for me to, it's the right, it was the right time for me to do it. Um, and, you know, I think, again, being an old dad with all the other, you know, you've done all the stuff and got all the stuff out of the way and then you can it absolutely concentrate on knowing that you, you know, I, I think that it's, and again, going through, going through that cancer scare, cancer scare yeah. it just made me, you know, I want to be here for them until they're grown up, you know, I want to, I want to see them through and help them through everything, especially the boy, really, because I sort of think it's, so, I think there's, it's so hard for a, a boys to navigate what's going on, I think, and I think to, to have... To have a dad there to help you through that, I think, is, is, a, is a big thing. But And tell me, it's quite a nice love story, you and Katie, because you just sort of... Did you sort of know as soon as you met her? Well, I, it was. I sort of did. I mean, I, I'd sort of met her bef- before we started 
uh, dating, I'd met her at a gig, and I really liked her, and I really liked her uh, comedy, but I remember her sort of... It was like Let's she, face it, Stone Cold Falls. She's very beautiful. <laughs> and we talked a little bit after the... She was quite shy, and we talked a little bit after the... And I was talking to someone else, and she was like there with where you are, and I just remember, even though... You know, we weren't, I was talking to someone else. I just said, I really like, there was a feeling, I really like this feeling. And then t- I turned around and she'd gone and I was really, ups- I was sort of upset. <laughs> and she, uh, we sort of talked a bit on social media, I think. And she said she was that Edinburgh, which was a few months later. She said, I'm going to come and see your show. I'm up in Edinburgh, I'll come and see your show. And I remember, and you know, I hadn't really had much co- connection with her, but I remember being really, really excited that night that she was coming to the show and looking through the door to see her coming in. I thought I saw her come in and I was going, oh, great, great. I'm really excited about it. Um, but it wasn't her. She, did, <laughs> she didn't come. But it was sort of, you know, there was obviously something there. Yeah. Um, she was in a relationship with someone and then, you know, and it's sort of a bit messy because the, her boyfriend was a fan of mine, invited me to come and speak at his university. But he did that knowing, I, knowing that I knew Katie and I went there because I really wanted to see Katie again and so you know I went to Bournemouth to do this talk he met me for lunch and Katie wasn't at lunch and I was really <laughs> disappointed oh, no. so but I, I hadn't really consciously thought about it but... <laughs> I just had a lunch with this guy it was a fun <laughs> but I remember you know I really thought she would be there so I did this talk and it was fun. I remember seeing it at the back and, and, and liking that. And then we did, I did a gig that, I was doing a gig that night and that might be why I did, we probably arranged the talk so it was the same day as my gig. It was in Southampton, you know, a nearby town. And they came to see it. And I remember, I sort of looked across at her and just, she was at a different table. So we did, were hardly talking. I looked across a different table and, I, and I've never really been into legs in, in any way at all. But I remember just looking at her legs and thinking, wow, she's got like the most amazing legs I've ever seen. Even, can I say, even I <laughs> noticed her legs. Come on. And, um, and then after the gig, we just sort of fell into walking together. But it just felt, we were walk, it just felt like really right. She made a joke about anal sex that I thought was really <laughs> funny. And then I was doing gigs all down the South Coast, and I think I had a day off, and I was just couldn't stop thinking about her. You know, it, it, it just felt like this had to be. And I felt that she felt, you know, I felt like she felt the same when I was messaging her a bit, and she was going to come to London and try, a, try and be a stand-up, and so obviously things weren't going great in the relationship, and her boyfriend wasn't coming with her. Um, and so, I was, so we said we'd meet up, and um, when we met up and I said, look, I, you know, there's some, I feel like there's something going on. I, mean, I actually, you know, I remember thinking I'm going to marry this girl and I'm going to have kids with this girl and all this. And I didn't say it because it was not even a first date. But I just really felt strongly. And then I said, you know, I just feel like something's going on. And she said, well, it isn't. And I went, oh, OK. And it was a very slow, you know, for me, I'd, I'd always been, we're going to bed as soon as possible. <laughs> Let's Were get you? that out of the way. Yeah. yeah. Well, also, I think just get out of the way and, you know, I don't, I'm you not... You were frightened not, of commitment, though. Yeah, but a little bit. But also, I'm not, even if you're going to get committed, I'm not interested in, like, waiting around. And But with her, I did, you know, we, we did. We completely waited and we waited until she was single. And we, you know, we just had these lovely... Just these really magical, fantastic dates where everything felt... Um, hey, Wolfie. Wolfie, sit down. But it's weird, isn't it? Because you sort of think, what, what, what was it that... What was it that made that... It, it did, you know, and I think I felt that. I think I felt similar things with other people, and it hasn't worked out, obviously. But it did feel different than the other times as well. But maybe it's in maybe it's in hindsight you say that. But I kind of felt, you know, I had a moment on that first date where I thought we're going to have two, we're going to have two kids, we're going to have a boy and a girl. Did you? Yeah, and I, you know, there was it just felt like the future was there, and I knew it. But it, you know, it's it, there must be lots of times you think things like that, and it doesn't happen. Here's a question I like to ask people because. Were you a liar as a child? 
Did you tell lies? I don't know if I did a lot, really. I mean, I did lots of jokes, but I don't think I really was. I'm, you know, and I think like as, as an adult, certainly honesty was all my, always my thing. And when I was dating, honesty, I realised I realised how much honesty was the best policy, even if you're being cynical, <laughs> just trying to get. So like, you know, you, if you're honest about what's going on, people. Because and, and you know, as when you're dating someone and someone lies to you, it's the worst thing, right? And I think like yeah. e- even if even if someone says, "Look, I'm seeing two other guys, but I like you and I want to carry on seeing you," it's better than finding out that that's happening. And if you like the person and they've been honest, you decide whether you want to carry on with that relationship. You know, so I, I was. I, I, Honesty is a harder way to live, though, isn't it? It is, but I think it's. I, do, I think even if you're a dishonest person, <laughs> I think it's a better tactic. Even if you're a horrible person. Well, who do you just... know I lied a lot as a child? Did you? Yeah, and I think... I think I did. My son does, but I don't... Does he? Yeah, I don't remember. I just remember, I, would, I loved being irritating and I loved, I loved ma- making people laugh and people who could make me laugh. And what so do you I'd, do? How do you process... I lied. I lied a bit. Anger, because you don't strike me as an angry person. I think you're quite calm. I am. You? I'm not... I used to be, though. Well, you know, I used to have quite a bad temper. I once slammed a door that then fell off its hinges and nearly killed my mum, but luckily my granddad caught it. <laughs> it would have banged my mum on the head. I, you know, I remember, I remember having an argument with the girlfriend I was just splitting up with and smashing my own calculator for some reason. <laughs> it's a, such a weird thing to do and stamping on it. It's such a dated My calculator. It was, it was quite a nice one. And you know, it's not, I don't know what I was thought that was going to achieve because it's my own calculator. Um, and uh, you know, I think I, w- I did get cross, about, I did get angry about stuff, um, but I don't know, something, ch- changed? something changed. I don't know what, how it changed. I think it's just not, I mean, I'm very calm. I think about nearly everything. And I do, you know, if I lose, I remember like getting very angry with, um, I can't remember what it was. I argued with Katie about something and I got angry and stormed out, you know, got, got out and stormed and slammed the gate and broke the, <laughs> broke the gate at my house. Uh, but you know, but then also just feeling terrible about it because it was it was um, so unusual for that to be overcome in that way that you're that angry. And I was still angry when I you know went for walk the dog and came back, and I was still angry when I got back. And I can't I can't even remember what it was about. And every time we argue, it's only because we're both really tired. <laughs> is what I've realised. We're both really tired, and, yeah. we, and then we have you know we can have a stand up row, but we yeah. don't argue much. I don't know when the change happened or how Hello. it happened. Hi there. But. <laughs> this is beautiful. It's, we won't say what it is, but what it's called. But yeah. there's beautiful. There's a lovely tea shop and a new tea bike shop. shop. So a lot of a lot of cyclists Hello. come through. Oh, uh, and there's a cat on the table. <laughs> is that your cat? No. I it's thought lovely. you brought it out with you for coffee, and I had a lot of respect. <laughs> oh yeah, lovely to meet you. Oh look at those men, the cyclists. So, yeah, this is you know this when we came here, we, we, we kept, this is, we'd sort of had a house somewhere else, and it was all sorted out, and about three weeks to go. And then the vendors dropped out, and so we then we came and looked at this place, and we just and we it was at, you know there's loads of things that that it wasn't on our tick list for this place, and we just really liked the village, and we really liked, and that was one of the things we liked that nice cafe. Yeah. There's a nice pub, you know. But there's you these, seem really chilled and in a good place. You know, but I think yeah. I really but think like with the podcast, I sort of think it's interesting to me and quite significant that you're an early adopter. It gives you the you need that kind of freedom. But I think that's, I think I've, I'm satisfied with around. I think I realised all I need to do is have an outlet to do this stuff. Yeah. I think as long as I'm performing in some way, that means I'm sort of happy. I mean, I'm a sort of different person on stage. If I don't perform, I, if I didn't do stand-up, my wife used to say I'd, I'd get a bit kind of weird and antsy. But, I've, but, but just by doing any kind of performance, and I don't care if it's in a pub, I don't care if it's a thousand yeah. people, that's great. If it's six people, that's great. But I'm also, I'm no longer... 
and this is a problem a lot of comedians have even when they're super successful almost <laughs> more so they're just obsessed with where their position is and, and, and who, how everyone else is doing and who's doing better than them and why are they not the best. And I've just, I just changed my attitude to go, all I'm doing, if I'm competing against anyone, it's only against myself. But also if I'm working and I'm doing what I want to do, then that's, that's all, you know. And so I'm, I'm, I've lucked, and it wasn't by choice because I would have loved, I think, the, you know, the career I probably would have loved is something like David Mitchell, um, sitcoms, panel shows... I'd like to have done a bit more writing maybe than David does in terms of writing TV shows, but um, he does a fair amount of that as well. So it's that kind of thing. But, I, you know, I, I just sort of, you know, and so when it wasn't happening, you think, oh, I'm a failure or this is happening or, you know, why, why, aren't, why doesn't TV want me anymore and blah, blah, blah. And why, that, why is that person doing better than me? What's this person doing better than me? And I just realised, you know, I've lucked into this position where I do yeah. exactly what I want, even if it's commercial, great. If it's not commercial, great. So, like, most of my podcasts are just ridiculous you know almost vanity projects but just things that i think are really funny but that only a thousand people think are funny um uh, but then the the big podcast has now given me the freedom to do anything i want so i've got budget to make other we did a short we did an independent film i've financed an independent film with the, the film director jamie adams this welsh brilliant film director which will be out hopefully next year and, and, and also, I'm, you know, I'm well known enough that people will listen to my stuff, but I, I can walk down the street and even that woman in the, by the stream didn't know who I was, did she? So, and she lives in my village because I'm inside all the time doing podcasts. So, you know, I'm really, I think as a 19-year-old, as a I said, I want to be male, I want to be famous. I want the girls to have, you know, I want girls to be falling all over me and be drunk, going to parties and be, and be friends with Elton John or whatever. But, you know, I kind of, that's not, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a private person. I don't. I never really enjoyed going out. I've stopped drinking. I, I, everything that I care about is in my house. Uh, I like my dog and I like my family. Uh, and uh, and I'm doing. You know, I'm, I'm not doing everything I want to do, but I'm doing. I'm doing enough stuff. Mm. And just the idea of, you know, if you go, if you really went to the 14 year old and me say one day you'd be on TV, I'd have gone wow. And you go, and if you said you'll still be working, you'll be work as a comedian, you'll consistently work for 35 years or, you know, however long I go on for, um, I wouldn't have believed it, you know. And I think, I think there's a mindset amongst comedians, you've got to shoot, you've got to be the best, you've got yeah. to be... And even if you get there, you'll get knocked down from there. But also, it's, and also, what compromises are you making? You know, I think a lot of the, a lot of the great comedians now get onto TV and they're presenting just they're presenting shows which is fine but they're not doing what they're great mm. at on telly you know they're still doing it live which is fine but it's just what what you're aiming for when we were kids you could aim for like you know getting a BBC two show on a Thursday night was what I would have aimed for and I got mm. that when I was 25 years old you know so that's I'd sort of hit the my, my main ambition yeah. I would have happily you know if it had gone on to be know, someone like if I, if I could be Michael Palin that would be a nice career Aww. if I could he's be so great. he is he's great on and your... he's a, and he's a lovely lovely man this stream makes me really it gives me a happy heart <laughs> do you know what I mean you take it for granted I do absolutely take it. it for granted I'd it does look here. ridiculously pretty today it's a lovely day to, for you to have come down are you a crier? How, when did you cry last? Well, like, cry last time I cried was when I thought I had <laughs> cancer. I think that's probably... I, I used to cry a bit more to, like... But only, like, at films and stuff, you know. I used to be massively oversensitive. I think in my did 20s you? I cried a lot. Yeah, and I think I was, I was very, very sensitive. But again, I think quite... I, was, I think I'd been... You know, I probably could have done with therapy over all the things <laughs> that had been bullied and, you know, and, 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 and everything. It was such a different, you know, looking back at it, it's kind of incredible we all got through that, but yeah. especially that I got through it, I think, because it was, 
in an incredibly sort of term, turbulent time. Some people, some comics I speak to say they don't want to have therapy because they feel it's tinkering with what makes them able to be a comic. Yeah, and I don't. I, do you I, agree I, with that? There's an element, but I also think I think the stand-up's the therapy. I would just tend to take <laughs> if there's a big issue, I'll take it and do a show about it. And that's absolutely the best way to cope with everything. And, <laughs> and once you've got it out there, I can't, there's hardly anything you can say that won't be better being said, you know. And so it's, it, the, the show, the routines and everything, oh, can I talk about that? You know, that's, that's very personal. Or, you know, I'm not sure. Those are the ones that go the best because people are just relieved to hear someone else say the thing that's going on in their awful brain as well. So I think that's, you know, that's a lot of what I, I, I certainly used to do was just was kind of voice... Well, that's Comedy's truth, and, essentially, yeah. isn't it? So that's your job, in a way, is that yeah. you highlight the things that we're too frightened to. Yeah, but I think by two, you know, by two, and I've done a lot of stuff about men's health, obviously, ironically, and then had a men's illness, yeah. but it's and men's mental health. But I think it is by talking about it. You just when I did Talking Cock, I realised just how screwed up most people were and how worried about stuff most people were. We were brought up very badly in our generation as men, and I think even if someone when I was eighteen had gone, you know, women, you know, you're not. Women want to have sex. They just you have to, you just have to be a nice person. <laughs> you don't have to trick them, and you don't have to convince them. And you, don't, you know, you just have to be nice or or interesting or sexy or whatever you're going to be. But you know, you are made to think from from everything that like girls are like, oh no no, that's never going. That I might do it if I'm married and we're going to have a baby. And you know, I don't think it's the same. It's all worse in a way now. But I think. You know, if someone had just talked to us about that, like, sensibly as 15-year-olds and just said, this is just be respectful and... Talking about stuff is a great result. So yeah. I've, I've found doing stand-up has been the best therapy for me. And usually, even when it... I've come, like, when I did the Hercules Therapy Show, I was properly really depressed, really, throughout that show. And that show was about trying to get through that depression. But the show got me through the depression and it nearly mm. sort of broke me as well in places. It was those things in it that made me very un unhappy. And that, but then when I got to the end of it, I kind of it somehow magically made me realise what I was doing. It was a very it was my, probably my least successful stand-up show, but it was the most important show in terms of it made me think I've got, I should do stand-up. Mm. I now I went on Fifty Dates of Fifty Days in that show, mm. and that made me completely understand what dating was about, and in a way that I had never understood. So and more and empathetic that, in a way. Well, empathetic, but also understanding you could, if you like someone, you could just say, "Should we go out for a drink?" <laughs> you know, and it was it was that, and and by being and, and being honest, because I, I was before I was thinking if I had two girlfriends at the same time. I would hide, I'd felt terrible because I'd be, I'd be trying yeah. to, you know, if I, you know, early in a relationship, not if I was with someone, but if I was, there was two girls and I was dating two girls, I would have felt terrible about it. But with that, because I was dating loads of people and it sort of weirdly ended up lots, you know, a few of them wanted to go out with me. I had to go, look, I, this is a really confusing situation, but this is what's happening. If you can wait a few weeks, well, you know, I'm sure it'll settle down, which it did. And I went out with uh, one of them in the end. But, um, you know, it, it made me real, it just made me realise about work and life and, mm. and how to get on and I think that pro that's probably the turning point and I, I and you know getting back into stand-up and obviously getting into podcasting completely changed everything but meeting Katie as well I think it just it sort of saved me and having the family saved me because I think I would I was still at 13 at 40 still behaving like a kid and still you know still chasing after young women and I still... should say if anyone hasn't read that book I really recommend it it's called How Not to Grow Up yeah. and it's it's such a brilliant book. I loved it at the time, and I think I've, I've reread it since actually because it's just a funny, brilliant book. But you're also so sort of horrifically honest, yeah, in yeah. It, as you always are. <laughs> um, I think everyone moves at their own pace, and you've got to find your own place in the world. And you know, you you need to find you know you need, but you need to work out yourself first, really. I think before yeah. before anything else. So I went through all that stuff, and I really, you know, and and yeah, it might have been just who it might have been whoever the next person was, but I, but it definitely you know. 
Katie was definitely something. No. I mean, it was something completely different, and and you know, and it's sort of weird that that first. Obviously, it happens and it doesn't work out for people. But that first <laughs> feeling and that first inclination was just absolutely bang on. Um, you know, and I didn't know her. I didn't know anything about her really. So it's it's it was sort of just strange the way. But you know, that's the way hindsight works, isn't it? All right, don't be. Oh, don't. No. Oh no, Wolfie was giving her paw as if to say, <laughs> "I want to be your friend." Wolfie, Raymond's a bit funny about his face. Yeah. Oh. Let's not fight right at the end. Wolfie, yeah, I've had a lovely time with you. Come on, Ray. I think we might. I think we might explore this area because I tell you what. I mean, this is this is beautiful. Well, if we if we you can buy our house if you want. I mean, <laughs> if we move. It's very it's, nice. It is my dream house. <laughs> Richard lives in my dream house down here. Oh, Richard, we've loved our walk. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Wolfie, gonna, and gonna... we should say, so your podcast is going to be, um, you're going to be at Edinburgh. Edinburgh Fringe from the 3rd th to the 14th of August, I think just the first half. Uh, and yeah, and, and it, but it carries coming? on. It's all that's, yeah. So it's at the ballroom, ironically, in um, the assembly rooms at one o'clock, I think. But then I'm doing them all the time. I'm back at the Leicester Square Theatre. Um, in uh, the autumn, and I'm, I've got my book, my, my, my book coming out, which is called "I Want uh, Can I Have My Ball Back." It's called. Say bye bye, Wolf Wolf. Bye bye, Ray. I'm really, I'm really interacted with this Wookie. <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed listening to that, and do remember to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes.